0: And as the kids are heading out to Bible Adventures, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. And one of our members, Duncan McGraw, is going to come to us and read to us from the Gospel of Mark this morning. Thank
1: you. Good morning, everybody. And yes, it's on. Um, Didn't realize when I said yes to reading this that it was actually something out of Pulp Fiction or something that... uh, Brian De Palma would have written, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought him back, his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord.
0: We might recall that John the Baptist was the first person that we encountered as we began our journey through Mark's gospel. He was described as, as one foretold by Isaiah, a voice calling in the wilderness, calling the people of Israel to prepare the way of the Lord. John arrived on the scene as the first authentic prophet of God in the last 400 years. He drew crowds, great crowds of people from all around the region. They came out to the desert to hear him preach. His words made an impact His message of repentance led people not just into the wilderness, but also into the waters of the Jordan River. John baptized people throughout the Judean countryside. Their immersion and surfacing from the water reflecting not only a change of mind, but a change of heart. Their desire to be liberated from the bondage of sin. John was a prophet of the old school. Mark depicts him as a rough and tumble guy dressed in a camel hair shirt, cinched with a leather belt, a man who lived on a diet of locust and honey. No doubt he wore Old Spice. (laughs) John was the kind of guy who didn't pull his punches, who said what he felt called by God to speak. Last week, we heard Jesus quote the saying, prophets are not without honor except in their own hometown, Well, prophets like John had a way of getting themselves into trouble all the time, especially when the ones they called to task were the rulers of the land. Mark informs us that John found himself caught up in a power struggle between two Herods. We're used to thinking of King Herod as only one person, some of us. We're used to thinking of King Herod as only one person, but to avoid this from becoming confusing for us this morning, it would be better for us to think of Herod as a family name, the Herod family served as the puppet kings of Rome. The Romans ruled the world, but they set up the foolish and corrupt Herods to manage their affairs among the oppressed Jews. We might think of them as rent-a-royalty. Herod the Great was the first local tetriarch. This is, the Herod, this is the Herod that we just heard about during the Advent season that we always call to mind around Christmas time. Herod the Great was the king who grew anxious when a couple of wise men told him about a star that was leading them to the Messiah. Herod the Great's the one whose anxiety turned into a murderous rage as he slaughtered all the male infants in Bethlehem. But the Herod that John is, uh, Mark is speaking about is Herod Antipas, the ruler of Palestine, Herod the Great's son. And the Philip, Herod Philip, that Mark refers to is Herod the Great's son also, and Antipas's half-brother. The backstory here is that while Antipas was on his way to Rome, he visited his brother Philip and almost immediately fell in love with Philip's wife, Herodias. But be clear, there's more than love involved here. Because Herodias also happens to be Antipas' niece, Since they were related by blood, marrying Herodias gives Antipas a firmer grip on the throne, the upper hand in any power struggle between him and his brothers as king of the Jews in the Roman Empire. So Antipas divorces his first wife and marries Herodias, the wife of his half-brother Philip. And this is where John the Baptist comes in. John publicly and bluntly criticizes Antipas of flagrantly violating Jewish law. Now, bad PR is never a good thing, but it's especially damaging when you receive a negative endorsement from a man revered for being so righteous and holy. John's accusations are a political liability. His words are a dangerous threat to the powers that be, namely Antipas and Herodias. John has to be silenced. So Antipas has him arrested and thrown into prison. Now, you notice what Mark tells us. Antipas doesn't execute John, even though his new wife wants him to. Antipas doesn't execute John because Mark tells us Antipas both respected John and liked to listen to him, even though he didn't always get what John was saying. And so John the Baptist rots away. Clamped in irons, down below in a dark cell, out of the limelight, with no one able to hear his message other than perhaps the rats or the other prisoners. But as we heard Duncan share through the Gospel of Mark, John doesn't stay locked away all that long. Up above, you see there's a celebration going on. It's Herod's birthday. Herod has thrown himself a party. And now he's eating and drinking and swaggering with his crowd of toadies, his high officials, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. Mark tells us us the highlight of this gathering is the moment when Herodias' daughter, Mark doesn't give us her name, but history does. Her name was Salome. The highlight of this gathering is the moment when Herodias' daughter, Salome, comes into the banquet room to dance for Herod and his guests. Picture this scene in your mind. Picture this scene in your mind because to me, it's sadly all too familiar 2,000 years later. A bunch of leering men, most likely drunk, hooting and hollering as a young girl seductively dances before them. Her body as it sways back and forth, they wink and nod at each other, laugh out loud, In the perversity of their thoughts, maybe even their conversation, she becomes an object to which they all point and catcall. Herod's feeling very impressed with himself, very caught up in his passions, maybe even his lust. And it overtakes him. He calls Salome over and comments before all his guests, baby, that was hot (laughs) for dancing like that. Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. Whatever you ask for, I'll give it to you, even up to half my kingdom. That must have been some dance. (laughs) Because that's some offer by Herod. But more than an offer, you heard it, it's an oath that Herod swears before all his guests. We realize it, but Herod doesn't. Herod doesn't realize it yet, but he's just been played. He's been set up. Remember, don't lose sight of this. Herod, we're told by Mark, was fascinated by John the Baptist to the point of not just fearing him, but admiring him. But not his second wife, not Herodias. She's been nursing a grudge. She's been seething and waiting to settle a debt with John for his public criticism of her divorce and remarriage to her uncle, Antipas. Mark tells us, that Herod's birthday served as the opportune time. Linger on those words for just a second. Herod's birthday served as the opportune time. Beloved, what we have right here in Mark is the antithesis of a Kairos moment. It is the antithesis of a Kairos moment. Not what is God saying to me and what is God telling me to do about it? No, it's what do I keep telling myself and what am I going to do about it? It's the appointed time. Not for the revelation of God's will. It's the appointed time for the disclosure of hidden and secret desires of our sinful nature. Herodias's revenge. Salome, Herodias' daughter, has been promised anything she wants, up to half of Herod's kingdom. And after talking to her mother, the girl comes back with her request. The head of John the Baptist on a platter right now. Right now. Now. Herod is greatly distressed, Mark tells us. Most likely, could you picture it? He turns pale, he feels sick, maybe even a little conflicted. But he also has his guests to think of, a reputation to protect, and and a, a promise is a promise, even if it is a foolish one. And literally, minutes later, literally, minutes later, it is finished. John the Baptist is dead. This supposed man of power, Herod, this supposed man of power sits powerless in his intoxication, bound by his own oath, staring at the net result of his spineless pride. Somewhere between a forced smile and an impulsive grimace, Herod looks upon the gruesome last course to his birthday dinner, a human head delivered on a platter. The life of a man who intrigued Herod now haunts him as a plaything in a giggling girl's hands. It's a horrifying image. It's a horrifying image. And yet after this story, Mark goes back to what happened after the disciples returned from their short-term mission project assigned by Jesus. I don't know if you have your Bible open. If you don't, open it up and check this out. But if you take out this part of the chapter, the part that we had heard read this morning, if you take out this part, the John the Baptist story, it kind of works a little bit better because instead of having this sort of this, disjoint, this just, just disjointed thing, what you have is the disciples being sent and then them coming back to, from their field trip for the kingdom. It flows kind of seamlessly. What I'm saying to you, and these are the kind of things I think about when I read scripture, is why here? Why now? Why does Mark insert this seemingly tragic, of course, but parenthetical story about John the Baptist right here? Why in the middle? Up to this point, we've noted that Mark's very intentional about how he shares the good news of the kingdom. He's never accidental. He's not careless in what he chooses to share with us as well as when he chooses to share it. Mark is telling us the story of the gospel in a particular way for a specific reason. So what, what gives? Why here? Why this way? Is, is the story of Herod Antipas and his obscene birthday bash supposed to function as some kind of morality tale? With the moral of the story being, so people, remember, whatever you do, don't drink too much and make outrageous promises in front of your dinner guests. And if you do, never, ever behead a prophet. Well, while I'm only conjecturing, we can only conjecture about Mark's motives, I think we can be fairly confident that he wants us to walk away with more than that. So here's something, an interesting observation. Maybe this points us in the right direction. Do you know that this scene, this one scene in Mark's gospel, is the one scene in the whole of his gospel in which Jesus makes no appearance? This is the one scene in the whole of Mark's gospel where Jesus does not make an appearance. Maybe that's not by accident. Maybe that's not by accident. Maybe that's because Mark wants us to see that apart from God, apart from the kingdom Jesus brings, this is what we can expect. Maybe Mark wants us to see that apart from Jesus, human intentions will always go bad. Herod is seemingly the man in charge. And yet what happens with John here would suggest that he's in anything but control. Herod was the one who had John arrested, right? He could have taken John's life at any time, but Mark specifically tells us he intended to keep John alive for a reason. Fear, knowledge, curiosity, it doesn't matter. Despite being the one who gives the order, John's head doesn't end up on a platter because that's Herod's intention. No, the king kills the prophet because a young girl gets the best of him from just a little lap dance. Herod's story reflects in a broader sense how all of us, even with our best intentions, even when we intend to do good, it reflects how all of us, even with, despite our best intentions, are done in by our own deeds and the situations we create. Why does that always seem to happen apart from Jesus? because we're a broken people. We are not basically good people. Can I say that out loud? Because not only is that being said outside the church, but I encounter more and more Christians who will say, well, we're basically good people. If you're reading your Bible, if you truly are hearing Jesus, you will know we are not basically good people. We are basically messed up people. We're not mildly infected by the disease of sin, We're ravaged by it. This is a story, and there are others in the scriptures that reflect that power apart from Jesus, any power apart from Jesus, is the power of sin. And you may need to chew on that for a while. Any power apart from Jesus is the power of sin, and the power of sin corrupts all human institutions. In this short little story, you also see that as well. This story reflects how the power of sin is not only embedded in the human heart, Herodias, Salome, Herod, it also shows us how the power of sin runs wild and infiltrates systemic, political, and familial institutions as well. They're all here. You know, the thing is, reading the Bible can be challenging. Disturbing, even. Today especially, we can see that, that reading the Bible can be challenging, disturbing even, because you know what, it, what, what, what it's going on here is God's word doesn't sugarcoat things for us. God's word doesn't sugarcoat things for us. Sometimes when I engage students, uh, at the middle school particularly, but sometimes high school students, you know, you get the rap, oh, God's word is so irrelevant, God's word's so boring, God's word's, you know, it, it doesn't speak to, the, to my life. And as an, a gateway into a larger conversation, I will also, also often say to students, Um, Have you read the Bible? Because if the Bible were a movie, and we're very much about making the Bible into a movie these days, if the Bible were a movie, it wouldn't be rated R. It'd be rated NC-17. If you read the Bible, it wouldn't be rated R if it was made into a movie. And that's why the movies that they make of the Bible, frankly, lack. Because the reality is, if it says NC-17, you're not going to get people to go see it. Maybe that's the reason why people don't read it. But if the Bible were a movie, it would be rated NC-17 because grisly stories like this one eerily and honestly reflect the way of the world in which we all live. The way of this world apart from Jesus. Beloved, without the coming of the kingdom of God, without the coming of the kingdom of God, life is full of messy, bloody, even gruesome events and experiences. And stories like these confront us with truths that we'd prefer to ignore or deny. That apart from Jesus, sin, death, and the devil are alive and well in this world. We need to hear that because it's become much more in vogue and we go through seasons of this in the faith to sell Jesus based upon all the wonderful things that he's going to do for you and how much all the stuff that you're going to get from following Jesus. And I, I, can, I can engage that at one level, but what we're, we're, we're emphasizing that at the expense of acknowledging that it's not just that, well, Jesus makes us a better offer, that you get a free set of steak knives if you follow Jesus. We need Jesus because apart from Jesus, sin, death, and the devil are alive and well. Apart from Jesus, we're lost. Apart from Jesus... It's over. Maybe that's why Mark puts this story right here. Maybe that's why Mark puts this story right here, right in the middle of the mission that Jesus sends his disciples on, to remind them, to remind us that this is why we are sent, that this is why we go, that this is the difference the Lord seeks to make in and through us If you remember from last week, and if you have your Bible open to chapter 6, after all, what does Jesus primarily send his disciples to do? To engage impure spirits. To cast out impure spirits. Jesus doesn't, and this is important because we often mishear this, Jesus doesn't send his disciples out to make it us versus them. Jesus doesn't say to go out and, and, and create a line of us versus them. Jesus doesn't say to go out and demonize others. And we need to hear this because often in the church, that's what our legacy is. We think that Jesus has empowered us to draw lines between us and them. We demonize others. No, Jesus says, I am giving you authority and power to cast out unclean spirits. Jesus is giving us authority and power to cast out the principalities and powers that oppress, imprison, and kill all of us. Not just them or us, all of us. Mark places this story smack dab in the middle of this first commissioning by the, of the disciples to reinforce that part of our call to follow Jesus, part of what it means to point to Jesus, part of what it means of how we become more like Jesus is being prophetic. By speaking the truth. The truth of Jesus. The truth of the kingdom. To power. Jesus spoke the truth to power. How far have we gone in Mark? If we were to look back, Jesus spoke the truth to power about the dangers and abuses of political and religious power. He spoke the truth of the abuses of political and religious power rather than courting those powers. Jesus spoke the truth to power. Jesus spoke the truth about free health care to the poor. And the outcasts, he spoke the truth to power to even dare to speak the truth that compassion never takes a Sabbath. Jesus spoke the truth to power. He spoke the truth of acknowledging reaching out and touching, even sitting down at a table with those who others ignore or treat as invisible. Jesus spoke the truth about peace and reconciliation, that both are only possible in so long and in so far as we are willing to forgive and love our enemies rather than seek their destruction. Beloved, if we are disciples of Jesus, if we are not just Christians, if we are followers of Christ, then we cannot bury our head in the sand. We cannot go on living in denial. We cannot exist comfortably numb. We have to be willing to see. We have to be willing to acknowledge. We have to be willing to declare that this world, this life, is not the way it's supposed to be. We have to be willing to see. We have to be willing to acknowledge. We have to be willing to declare that we are not the way we're supposed to be. Being prophetic means speaking the truth to power. The truth that the power of this world, the sort of power that we crave, the sort of principles that we value, the kind of principalities and powers that we bow down to, corrupt us rather than make us whole. They imprison us rather than set us free. They take life rather than give it. If this is true, if this is our calling, if this is what it means to follow Jesus, to point to Jesus, to become more like Jesus, then beloved, why are we not more prophetic? Why are we not more like John in following Jesus? Because who wants to end up like him? Who wants to end up like him? If John's story tells us anything, it's when you speak the truth, the truth hurts. The truth encounters resistance, sometimes violent resistance. Those who stand up to City Hall take a beating. Those who advocate an alternative to the status quo can usually expect that those who benefit from the status quo will come on down on them hard. The truth. The truth will get you thrown into prison. The truth will lead your head to end up on a platter. The truth. The truth will lead you to the cross. The truth will lead you to the cross. Beloved, don't overlook that this is a turning point in Mark's gospel. The one who came to prepare the way, John the Baptist, foreshadows the cruel execution of Jesus also at the hands of the powers that be. When we speak truth to power, sometimes power strikes back. And that's why, if we're honest, we don't always tell the truth. We don't always tell the truth. But Mark understands this. Mark understands. He understands our hesitancy and our fear. Do you know that when Mark most likely wrote this gospel, he most likely wrote this account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection at a time when people around him were frightened and persecuted too? Historians believe that Mark was putting pen to paper as the temple in Jerusalem was about to be destroyed. As the Roman Empire was launching a massive campaign to once again reassert its control once and for all over the region of Palestine, over the region of Jerusalem, John the Baptist, a man driven by the power of God, is silenced by Herod Antipas, a man who wields the power of the Roman state, a power that Mark's hearers knew all too well, a power that also threatened them. And we can go beyond the confines of the historical context of Scripture because, beloved, the pages of history, the pages of history are littered with the threat and abuse of such power, as well as the killing of those who would defy such worldly power and darkness in order to speak God's words of love, mercy, and justice to a creation in bondage and in pain. In our own Lutheran tradition, we can think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who spoke the truth of Jesus to power, and gave his life for it in a Nazi concentration camp. Just over a month ago, we remembered the life of Nelson Mandela, who spoke the truth of the kingdom to power, even as he spent years of his life isolated in a prison cell. And this weekend, we celebrate, I hope, the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who spoke the truth of the gospel to power through words from a Birmingham jail, as well as a march on Washington, D.C. Beloved, Mark's recital of today's grim story does indeed reflect the way of the world, but Mark gives it to us to also let us know it's not the whole story. As brutally honest as Mark is about what happens to John, Mark's purpose in sharing this is to frame this terrible tragedy in light of a bigger and better story. The story of God's love and salvation in and through Jesus Christ. Notice, did you catch this or did you breeze by it? I did. I breezed by this every time. Do you notice how Mark tells us this story? If you have your Bible open, check it out. Mark speaks to us in the past tense. He's speaking to us in the past tense because he's explaining, do you catch it? He's explaining Herod's reaction to what Jesus is doing. Mark begins by sharing with us that while the disciples were sharing and exercising the authority and power of Jesus in the land, news got back to Herod. And what's Herod's first reaction? It's beautiful. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead? It's a reaction of fear. It's a reaction of fear because even though Herod doesn't know it, it's a foreshadowing of the resurrection that is to come. Mark wants us to see, beloved, that Herod may have been able to kill the messenger, but the message continues to be shared. God's word of love can never be silenced. What so many people in the world, what so many people who wield power apart from Jesus don't seem to understand, is that their power is limited because it comes from their own ego. It won't last. Herod the Great died a miserable death, his body ravaged, racked with diseases. He's remembered as a tyrant and a murderer. Antipas, Herodias, Salome all wielded power, but their power diminished and died. But John's power. The power of the prophets grew even after their deaths because they spoke God's truth, a truth that had been planted in their hearts, the truth about Jesus, the power of Christ that defeats the devil, that forgives sin and that conquers death, that defeats the devil, that forgives sin and that conquers death. That's absolute power. That's eternal power. That's unforgettable power. That's the kind of power you can ignore, but you cannot avoid. The memory of John was so powerful that when Herod heard of the amazing thing that Jesus and his disciples were doing, he thought Jesus was John raised from the dead. Herod is afraid because he knows you cannot kill the truth. That's it, beloved. Mark shares all of this with us to assure us that once the strong word of God's truth, justice, and love have been spoken and have been given life by the voice of a prophet, the word of salvation will not die. More than 50 years after his murder, Martin Luther King Jr.'s words, far from being silenced by an assassin's bullet, ring with greater truth and conviction than ever before. God's word of love and salvation, of hope and freedom in Christ continue to echo, to ring, to vibrate throughout the world beyond the heartache, beyond the intrigue, beyond the shock and the scandal, beyond the tragedy of Herod or ourselves. So my brothers and sisters, when the temple is destroyed, when our hero is executed, When our marriage is ending, when we lose our job, or when we fear our child will never speak to us again, when our friend betrays us, or when we've trashed the one relationship that means something to us, the good news is, thanks to Jesus, there is always the promise of another ending. A good ending. Jesus comes precisely so that we might experience a better ending to our stories. And the world story. A better ending that we couldn't construct on our own. A better ending that we couldn't even have imagined. We can know this. We can believe it this morning. But beloved, we must speak it. We must speak it. We must declare this truth. We are so blessed. We live in this great country of America. We are so blessed We are blessed to live in this country because we are blessed to have the right of freedom of speech. Do we really understand that? Or for many of us, do we take it for granted of how blessed we are to live in a country where we have the right of freedom of speech? I don't know if we appreciate it because it it seems to me that more and more people seem to think the right of free speech means the right to say whatever you want. It's the right to complain. It's the right to criti- to ridicule. It's the right to abuse others through your words. But the right of free speech is a blessing. One of the reasons freedom of speech is so important is because it allows us as people to speak truth to power. It allows us to stand up to injustice and violence. It allows us to advocate for the poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant without fear of violence. We live more and more where people think in this country that freedom of speech is the freedom to hear yourself talk. Freedom of speech is the freedom to speak for those who don't have a voice. To speak for those who can't be heard. And that's not just an American notion, that's a biblical notion. God gave us the ability to speak, to speak not for ourselves, but for those who have no voice. And so... Even if they were to come and take that away, even if they were to come and take away freedom of speech in this country, as it doesn't exist in many countries of the world, as Christians, let alone as Americans, we are compelled to speak up and to speak out for justice and righteousness. Beloved, to follow Jesus, to be to covenant, to be a part of the body of Christ, the family of God, is to accept the responsibility to be a prophetic voice in this world today. Remember the five-fold ministry from many months back. There are not just prophets in the church. We are all called in Christ. We are given the authority and power of the kingdom to be prophetic for Jesus. We are called by Jesus to reveal the authority and power of the kingdom of God by speaking up for love in the face of hate, by telling the truth in the face of injustice, and by speaking the truth in love through our actions. Beloved, we stand in the long line of the people of God who came before us, called by God, to stand up and speak out for our neighbors, to rise up together and oppose not people, but to oppose the forces of oppression, exploitation, and discrimination. We sit here today... Thanks to the blood of the cross, but the blood of the cross remains covered by the blood of martyrs. People who physically died, people who experienced emotional, spiritual, mental death, rather than to remain silent. Are we speaking up? Are we speaking the truth in love? Are we speaking the truth of Christ to power? And if we speak the truth of Christ in love, that's power. That's the power I'm talking about. Now, we don't all have to be Dietrich Bonhoeffers. We don't have to all be Martin Luther King Jr.'s. Some of us may, but we don't all have to be that. Let's not undercut the significance that one voice, one life can make in any place that God has put you. Beloved, are we speaking into situations of abuse? I don't care where you are, we see abuse around us. Are we confronted by physical, verbal, emotional, spiritual abuse? And are we speaking up? Are we speaking out? There are kids here today, high school students, junior high. I'm talking to you as well as adults. If you're at a school where someone else is being bullied, if you're at a school where someone else is being put down, you can be prophetic. The power and authority of Christ can speak through you, not just because it's the right thing to do, but it's because of what Jesus called you to do. We are surrounded by situations of injustice. We are in a world plagued by sin where often wrongs are being committed as if they were right. We see it. We experience it in our places of work, in the transactions we do, in the relationships we have, in those situations of injustice where wrong is being committed as being right. Are we speaking up? Are we speaking out? Or are we just washing our hands or just telling ourselves, well, everybody does it. We live in a world, if it's ravaged by sin, that's a world that's predominated by lies. Lies that aren't just the opposite of truth. Lies that seek to squash the truth. We live in a world plagued by dishonesty where it is, it is considered good business. It is considered smart negotiation. It is a considered savvy way to be in relationship to stretch or manipulate the truth. To lie and act and pretend as if it's truth. You're considered a genius if you can tell a lie and other people think it's true. Beloved, we're surrounded by it. We're tempted to do it in these situations of dishonesty where lies are being presented as truth. Are we speaking up? Are we speaking out? Or are we just figuring a little white lie never hurt anybody? Beloved, we are in a world, we don't have to go far. You, you go out through these doors, you're not going to have to go far. We can see evidence of neglect and ignorance all around us in our world. Ignor- evidence of neglect and ignorance. And as we see it, not having to go far, do we look the other way? Are we burying our head in the sand? Or are we speaking up? Are we speaking out? Again, you, you, you right now, if you're like me, you're thinking big. I can't lead a march on Washington But could you change the the environment where you work? Could you change the community that you're a part of? Could your neighborhood suddenly change if you're the person who walks across the street and actually engages the neighbors that everyone else stays away from? You can't do those things, but Christ can and wants to do those things through you and me. Beloved, even if we're not talking about marches on Washington, even if we're not talking about stuff like Mandela or Bonhoeffer, the truth is no matter how small it is, even walking across the street or speaking up at work or at school with a bully, the reality is we're afraid. We are afraid but hear the word of the Lord this morning. We don't have to fear any power in this world. We need never fear the power of this world. We can speak truth to power. We can live the truth without fear because the Bible proclaims again and again, Jesus came so that we would know definitively that nothing will stand against the promises of God. Nothing will stand against the promises of God. And in fact, the truth will set us free. Jesus came so that we would know definitively that nothing can come between us and God's love. That God's love is so great for us that we are more than conquerors. Somebody tell me what that means. More than conquerors. Jesus comes so that we can know that nothing can wipe away the image of God in each person. Nothing can take away the seal of the Holy Spirit that's been placed upon our hearts. Jesus comes so that we would know that though the prophet be struck down, nothing can ultimately stand in the way of the mighty, ever-flowing waters of God's love, justice, and righteousness. So children of God, my brothers and sisters, let's stand up. Let's stand up for the truth. Let's speak the truth to power in love, and I got to hold those things together. Don't just stand up for issues. Don't just stand up to create us versus them. Don't just get fired up so you can demonize other people. When I say stand up for the truth, I say stand up for the truth and to speak the truth to power in love. Speak against sin, death, and the devil. And leave the people who are being oppressed. Leave the people who are being blinded. Leave the people who may even be your enemies to God to deal with. We need to stand up and we need to speak up. Since the word of God came to life in and through Jesus Christ, the truth will not die. God's truth has power. And no matter how much we try to suppress it or ignore it, eventually it will resurface and be heard. If history teaches us anything, it's that. Beloved, what I'm trying to say... (laughs) What I believe the word of God is saying to us is that John's story, as gruesome and as horrific as it is, it's not the end of the story. The story of Jesus is the whole story. The story of Jesus is the story that makes everything whole because Jesus never remains in the grave Jesus never remains in the grave. He is always resurrected. Beloved, let us stand up and speak out for Jesus, with Jesus, because Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the life that makes everyone free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty in Christ. We shall be free at last. Amen.